0: Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue in our series on Jesus is Greater. Uh, While you're turning there, I will just uh, mention that the redemptive compassion classes for Love Inc. begin uh, on a week from this Tuesday, so March the 7th. And if you want more information about that? Yeah, you can talk to your, your shepherding elder or just call the office, whatever. But March the 7th is when those classes start. Um, we're gonna look at, uh, at verses five through 10. So let's stand in honor of God's word. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation, for speaking, uh, so that we might know who you are, what you, what you are like, uh, what you like, what you don't like, and how we can know Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Our series in Hebrews has just been talking about how Jesus is greater, right? Um, so we're looking this morning at how he has a greater glory. Um, and uh, we're, we want to unpack that. But as we think about his glory, you know, one of the things that, that Hebrews 2 is telling us is that everything is in subjection uh, to Jesus, everything is in subjection under his feet. And the author repeats basically that, that, um, that idea four different times here in these verses. So that's important. Uh, but you contrast that that truth, that everything's in subjection to him, to the fact that that despite that, every one of us, you know, in in various ways, are in opposition to him. And how does that work? Uh, And yet, even though we're in opposition to him, Jesus has provided a way that anyone can join him in his exaltation, you know, through the forgiveness of our sins, through becoming new creation, so... Uh, that's that's the the lane we're going to be traveling in th- this morning. So let, let's um, let's look in more detail at the fact that everything is, is is in subjection to Jesus under His feet. He is our our glorious Maker and He's our glorious Keeper. He's He's our Creator and He's our King. Right. So so I want to scoot back to the very first verses uh, that open the book of Hebrews. So if you have Hebrews 1 open, uh, look with me at verses 1 and 2 real quickly. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, right? So we, we're not going to go back to Genesis, but I know many of you are familiar with how when God created the world, he, he spoke the world He spoke the universe. He spoke material, physical things into existence by the word of his power. His word is powerful. His word is creative. His word is formative. And so when God revealed himself to us, which we're we're so grateful for, and we talked about this last week, where would we be if God had not spoken? We, We wouldn't know what to do with our lives. We wouldn't know how to live. We wouldn't know even what's worth dying for if God didn't reveal himself. And and he, through his word, has created all things. The author quotes the Psalms again uh, here in this uh, you know, beginning of chapter two. He quotes Psalm eight that we did for our, our call to worship, by the way, today. Um, and this is the eighth time, coincidentally, that Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. And, and uh, again, like the Old Testament is this, this deep, rich, base, uh, this archaeological base, you know, uh, for the book of Hebrews. We're going to keep looking at all the references uh, as we go. But in verse, uh, the second half of verse 7, you know, we read from Psalm 8 that, that you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now that um, really comes on the heels of the opening verses of Psalm 8, uh, when it says, I looked at, when I looked at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? Who are we that you are mindful of him, that you pay any mind at all you know, to, to us, and the son of man uh, that you care for him? So, so this uh, Psalm 8 was originally written about humanity in general, right? Like we're the image bearers of God. And And he made us a little lower than the angels, but we have a destiny to be exalted, you know, around God's throne. Uh, But ultimately, Psalm 8 is messianic, pointing to Jesus, the Son of Man, who would come and be the true, fully man, you know, the one who's gonna do as a human what none of us could do in fulfilling God's purposes. You know, um, when Psalm 8 is marveling at God's creative work, it talks about you know, he, he, he makes the stars and, and the moon just with his fingers. Like, that's remarkable. That, that's intentional. That's the literal um, reading of Psalm 8, just with his fingers. He makes galaxies with just not even all of his strength. You know, we do a lot with our fingers. We do delicate things with our fingers, but when we want to do really hard work, we sort of lean in and we use our arms and our, our back and our legs even. But it was such a small thing for God to create everything that is that, you know, the psalmist just says it's just like with, with his fingers. We, we marvel at, at people who create remarkable things, seemingly even with, with little effort. It seems easy for them, right? Maybe it's an artist, maybe it's a vocalist, maybe it's an engineer, you know, maybe it's a researcher when they invent and discover things that, that change our lives, we, we go, wow, that's remarkable. Um, if, if you want a good example of this, uh, just go on YouTube and, and look up when Steve Jobs was debuting uh, the iPhone. Right? In 2007, uh, he stood up in front of the uh, Annually, you know, Apple has a, a meeting with, I guess, shareholders or you know, people, and they they want to roll out their new products and you know what they've been working on. So, when they wanted to roll out the iPhone, nobody had an iPhone before. They had some some what they call smartphones, but they were the flip things or the the little you know tiny keyboards that you know would 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 pull out and you know you'd tap away at those things. And and Steve Jobs gets up in front of all all these people at this Apple convention. He says. You know, Apple's had a pretty good run, and we've 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 been fortunate to to do some really remarkable things at this company, like the personal computer, the Macintosh. And then they had that little thing called an iPod, who who remembers an iPod, you know um, and And then he says, and we're about to do something new uh, and and we want to to do an update to the iPad. Um, we want we want um to the iPod, not the iPad. We want to do something. New with the, with, the, with the phone, and we're going to do something new with the internet. iPod, phone, internet. iPod, phone, internet. And everybody's like, you know, kind of getting excited, listening. Like, what's that? What's, what's going to happen? And he says, and we combine them all into one. The iPhone. And everybody goes, Ooh, wow. And they're so excited. Apple's invented something new. And, and then the, the really cute, almost like quaint part of the video is when he, he pulls out the phone, and he says... It's just a screen. It's got one button. And when you open the screen, you you can touch the screen. You can scroll and everybody goes, oh my goodness, a scrolling screen that you touch. You know, you don't have to use a stylus. You don't have to use those little plastic keyboards for tiny little people with tiny little fingers. Everybody's just going bananas. Oh my goodness, a touch screen. (laughs) Um, Listen, all kidding aside, sociologists, go back to 2007 as a groundbreaking year in society, in humanity, right? Like the whole revolution that's happened since smartphones, really through, through uh, what, what uh, Apple put forward with the iPhone. Crazy stuff, right? And, and there's, you know, like any technology, there's pros and cons, but, but people were so impressed and and, and just so full of, of, you know, even joy and euphoria, and they're clapping, and they're shouting, and it's just like, wow, what a fantastic invention, and they're, they're praising Steve Jobs. They're praising the maker of an iPhone. What's an iPhone? At the end of the day, they're things that we lose, they break, they fall apart, you know, we have to replace them, and, and you know, somebody comes out with a new and a bigger and a better, and then we forget about... The very first iPhone, who wants that paperweight anymore? It's nothing. But what about the one who creates all things? How much more praise, how much more glory does he deserve, right? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm or Isaiah six, you know, the angels, the seraphim are above the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There, Earth is full of his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is full of his glory. And everywhere we look, his fingerprints on everything that exists. He is the ultimate creator and uh, he deserves glory uh, for being that. And furthermore, he's not just our creator, he's our keeper. So verse 8 tells us now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Jesus, he left nothing Outside his control. He's the one uh, that verse 10 says is for whom and by whom all things exist. So he keeps everything together. He's the one who not only created everything, but he sustains everything. Um, You know, way back in in chapter 1, again, look at verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, you and I both know it's, um, it's not enough to be a clever creator. Like we create things, we make things, or, or things are made, and, and we, we put them in our homes. And if we don't take care of them, they break down. Uh, you can have a wonderful new kitchen put into your house, but if you don't do the dishes, they're going to pile up. And if you don't clean the stovetop, it's going to get nasty. And if you don't empty out that fridge from time to time, things grow in the, in the back of that. And so if you neglect that, if you don't maintain it, if you don't sustain it, uh, things fall apart. Entropy takes over. You know, We're all kind of getting excited because spring's coming and you're going to plant your garden, right? Well, you can't just plant a garden and then you know three months later come back and start picking beautiful lush tomatoes. You've got to take care of that thing. You've got to weed it. You've got to maintain it. You've got to sustain it. You know, um, you don't don't have a job if you don't go to work every day and maintain the work that you're doing. That project's not going to take care of itself. Just because it was off to a great start, you have to sustain it. And God's the same way. He's our creator and he's our sustainer. He's our king and he's our keeper. In him all things hold together, is what Colossians says. So Jesus holds all things together. We we owe him our existence as not only our creator, but he also maintains us and keeps us. He cares for us. He feeds us. That's why, you know, hopefully you're in the habit of pausing and giving thanks before a meal. He, He provides that food for us every single day, every single meal. He feeds us. He clothes us. He shelters us. Um, He's the one that's, you know, responsible for the daffodils popping up now, right? And we look at the daffodils and we go, oh, they're so beautiful. Well, you know, from a tiny little daffodil to the macro where we look up into the sky and we see the sun shining, you know, God sustains the sun, keeps it burning. Why? So, that we can have light. So the daffodils and plants can do their little photosynthetic thing. Why? Well, because we need oxygen in the air. So why? So the, the next breath that you and I take can be received as a life-sustaining gift to us. The moisture on our eyes where you blink and we just take that for granted, that's a gift from God who keeps us and who sustains us. In Psalm 121, we, you know, we lift up our tear-moistened eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who keeps us. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your, your going out, your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And right here is probably a pretty good place to pause. And to, to acknowledge a question that maybe has already occurred to you, but if not, let me just bring it up because most of the time when people cover this part of Hebrews chapter two, they look at you know how he sustains all things, you know he's upholding all things, but we don't always see everything in subjection to him. Like if Jesus is such a good keeper. If, if, if he's feeding us and clothing us and, 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 and housing us, you know, if he's doing all these things, why are there people who are without food, without clothes, and without shelter, right? Hebrews says he left nothing outside his control. Then why does he let thousands and thousands of people suffer from things like earthquakes and school shootings and famines. Sometimes people ask those questions and I think well-intentioned but maybe a little anxious. uh, Christians will say, well, well, you shouldn't be asking that question. You just need to believe and have faith, right? Well, no, that's wrong. It's a valid question. It's a smart question. It's a good question. And we need to wrestle with it. This is a good place to talk about the feet of Jesus. Jesus. To kind of make sense of, well, why would a God who, who upholds everything, who sustains everything, who's left nothing outside his control, why are there people suffering, right? Well, we've talked about how everything is in subjection to Jesus under his feet, but, but nonetheless, every everyone is, is in opposition to him in some way, shape, or form, right? Look at verse 8, second half of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death. We ought to pause right there and go, that makes no sense. That Jesus would be crowned with glory and honor Because of the suffering of death, A, the suffering of death, there's nothing glorious or honoring about that. B, what in the world is the one who created all things and who sustains all things, our our creator and king? What is he doing dying? What what is going on there? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's, Let's talk about that. So, all right, according to Hebrews, Hebrews has told us four times in in these verses that everything is in subjection to Jesus. Now in heaven, everything was under his feet, right? But humanity doesn't want to be in subjection to Jesus. We've got an allergic reaction to that word, don't we? Like society's suspicious of being in subjection to any authority figure. Why? Well, because certainly we've seen... Ample evidence of how people will abuse their authority. People get taken advantage of. So we get really nervous around ideas like being in subjection to authority. We are in opposition to God. We're in rebellion against Him. We disobey Him and ignore Him. This was the sin of our very first parents, And it continues to exist in our own lives, right? There's a really, really brilliant Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson. He gives us a picture of what sin looks like. This is so vivid, right? He says that sin is kicking against the breasts of divine mercy. Like a little baby doesn't want to be cuddled, doesn't want to be held, doesn't want to be nourished, but is just kicking against the breasts of mercy. It's a vivid image of us and a vivid image of God. Now with, with that image in mind, how we don't want to be under subjection of, uh, uh, under Jesus' feet, take Thomas Watson's imagery and apply it to Jesus. The one who has everything under subjection to under his feet became human took on our nature, our human nature. He was fully God, becomes fully human, and is born of Mary. And takes on our body, our baby body. He has little tiny feet with little baby toes, right? And can you just picture Mary cuddling Jesus, nursing him? He's not kicking at her breasts. Jesus came and got his feet dirty, literally, got his feet dirty for us by joining us in our humanity. He he walked our our dusty, nasty roads, right? He needed to wash his feet. And on the night that, that he was betrayed in the upper room, as he's gathered around that table with his disciples he takes off his outer clothing, strips down, wraps a towel around his waist, and then goes around individually to all of his disciples and washes their feet. Less than 12 hours later, a Roman nail would be driven through his feet. Crucifixion was the most shameful and terrible form of execution, arguably, in the history of humanity. And as these victims hung naked, suspended between heaven and earth, people. Society had rejected them and they assumed God had rejected them too. They just assumed that individual was cursed. That person's not fit to live and that's what Jesus endured for us. How in the world could the one who had everything in subjection under his feet end his life with a nail driven through those feet. How does that make sense? Well, through crucifixion, the the bloody feet of Jesus were suspended, right, over earth. And even in that moment, even as he hung on the cross, everything and everyone was literally, nonetheless, still under his feet, even at the worst moment of humanity's rebellion against God, even when we crucified God in the flesh. So with with this in mind, as you think about the feet of Jesus, let's try to make a little more sense of God's glorious mercy. Because we're told right there in verse 8, right, that we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now we need to make sense of how in the world could the suffering of death provide a greater glory for Jesus. On the front of your bulletins, an interesting uh, image that I, I I found, and I've seen this multiple times. A, a, a depiction like this—it's it's kind of it's a little bit cartoonish, almost kind of uh, childish, actually. Where you've got the disciples—they're on the bottom, and uh, you can see the one on the left—he's looking up, and there's another one on the right, sort of looking out at 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 the the reader. And there's this feet suspended, you know, from the ceiling almost, and that's. That's Jesus ascending, um, and again and again. This this comes from a um, a, a song book, a psalter, uh, and they would illustrate these song books with these little paintings. This one actually is gilded. There's there's gold leaf and stuff, but you know obviously we can't reproduce that. We put gold leaf on your bullets, and that'd be pretty cool. Um, these images became popular in England in the eleventh century, and 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 they just took off because this was a way that. That artists uh, would depict the ascension, uh, and they, they kind of colloquially became known as the disappearing Christ. There he goes, you know, you know, he's, he's disappearing. You can't see him anymore. And it, and it is, I, I like how they're doing it. They don't want to show. They don't want to like, you know, break the second commandment and give an image of Jesus. So they just show his feet. But overwhelmingly, the majority of the time, when you see an image like this, it's missing something really important. But this image isn't. This image got it right. And if you look carefully at the feet of Jesus, you see two marks where the nails were. Most of the time, an image like this doesn't have the nail wounds. Maybe there's something in us in the human mind. It could be ignorance or just forgetfulness. Oh, we forgot to put them. But I think there's something that that kind of uh, resists putting those marks on it. He's in glory. He shouldn't have the nail wounds. Well, the nail wounds are part of his glory. They're essential to his glory. In Luke 24, he's he's resurrected. He appears to the disciples back in the upper room. And he says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why? To show them the nail wounds. To show them the evidence of his greater glory and honor. How he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. What does the suffering of death show us about the greatness of Jesus' kindness? Well, it shows us the glory of his kindness, the extent to which God would go to help the helpless, who can't save themselves. He, he, God, God wouldn't even spare his own son in order to bless us and to save us that shows us his glorious kindness it shows us his glorious mercy this overwhelming compassion toward us who actually deserve to be held accountable for our sins we deserve judgment not compassion but god god's merciful it shows us the glory of his forgiveness it shows us that god doesn't just forgive the run of the mill sins the kind of white collar sins but no, he forgives terrible sins. He, he forgives evil. He forgives personal sins against himself. That's the glory of God's forgiveness. It's, the cross shows us the glory of God's love. That, that shows us the kinds of people that God restores. He restores people who are his enemies. He, he, he restores people who are traitors. He restores people who have committed tiny sins and great sins. And that's the glory of his love that we see only because of the cross. We can't see it otherwise. It shows us the glory of his justice. Now, f- follow, follow this, this train of thought real quick. When Jesus was on the cross, when that nail was put through his feet, he said something really, really incredible. It is finished. And that's the only way God's justice could be completely satisfied, that the sentence could be completely paid, that the price could be completely you know, paid in full, and that, that the work be finished as if Jesus had done it for us. We, we, we have such a shallow understanding of sin because in our minds, we don't have a, we, we, we can't do the math. We can't work it out how a person could reject God and be separated from Him forever, spend an eternity in hell, and that still not be sufficient to satisfy God's judgment. That's how great sin is. But Jesus did satisfy it. It's Finished. So this is the glory of God's justice in the cross. There's the glory of God's deliverance, that, that through Jesus He took the sting out of death. And we're going to look at this more next week. But, you know, he also we also see God's glorious wisdom through the cross. And I, I just can't say it any better than John Piper said it: that the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the righteousness of God. That's his wisdom. And so when Hebrews tells us that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of, not in spite of, but because of the suffering of death, that's, that's where it becomes evident to us. Colossians says that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. John Owen was, um, I mentioned Thomas Watson. John Owen was another Puritan pastor who was just brilliant and. Uh, wrote a commentary on Hebrews and I think he sums it up really really well. He says this thus it is seen that grace God's grace was the impulse behind Christ's death. This was his mercy. This was the glory of his grace. It was the gracious, free, sovereign purpose of God's will suited to and arising from his natural grace, love, goodness, pity, mercy and compassion all working together and was out of the love and kindness Toward others who would not otherwise have been brought to glory, that Christ was thus appointed to die. So look, we love, we we love and we glorify God for His His beauty, for His Majesty, for His His creativity, uh, the fact that He sustains us and He cares for us and He does all these. But we love Jesus even more for his humility and his sacrifice. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you, well, this is the answer to why um, tragedies and horrible things happen on earth. The Bible doesn't give you a watertight answer for that. It's a good question. It's a valid question. It's a smart question. It's an honest question. What the Bible gives us, what God gives us is Jesus. Who who came and who experienced hunger. Who came and who experienced nakedness. Who came and experienced homelessness. Who came and experienced the wrath of God on the cross who had a nail put through his beautiful feet. For us. At present, we don't see everything yet in subjection to him, but we see Jesus. And today we still struggle with suffering, but there is a day coming through Jesus when he returns to bring his kingdom in all of its fullness when hunger and nakedness and homelessness and death will be no more. Everything's in subjection to him, and yet we, in our opposition to him, kick against his mercy. But he still shows his kindness to us. He shows his kindness to anyone who wants to be in exaltation with him. So Hebrews tells us that Jesus tasted death for everyone, right? Yet we have to kind of pause there and go, did he really for everyone Well, yes, in the sense that anyone can come to Jesus to have their sins forgiven and and wiped clean and the curse of death removed. We can come. You can come. I can come. Anyone can come and be assured of eternal life through what Jesus did on the cross for us. So in John 6, Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. If you believe in Jesus, He takes our sins on Himself and He raises us up to new life with Him through His resurrection. Anyone can enjoy that pardon. Anyone can have eternal life, including you. But does that mean that Jesus tasted death for everyone? Well, unless you believe that Jesus wasn't entirely sincere, you know, if his warnings about hell, like people go there, then in another sense, no, we can't say that Jesus tasted death for everyone. The benefits of Christ's death are not enjoyed by everyone. Not everyone will enter his kingdom. Only those who repent and believe in him, who come to him and say, I know my place, I want to be in subjection to you, Jesus. The theologians used to say that the grace of God, the cross was sufficient for all sinners, like it can forgive any and every sinner but it is efficient or effective only for repentant sinners, right? This is why Jesus would say things like, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Listen, in Hebrews, let's just wrap up with verse 10. It says that it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. There's something about the glory of Jesus that he invites us to share in. This is sort of beyond our, our, our wildest hope that you and I could be participants in the glory that belongs to Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is bringing many sons into glory? It means that if you believe in him, then you're united to him. And if you're united to him, then the father is Jesus' father, or the father becomes your father. And it means that you and I are adopted as royal children into his family through the gospel. So does the king of kings have glory? Yes. Then you do too, if we're part of his family royal family. Jesus is described as the heir of all things. The heir, the son, right? The rightful heir. And the gospel says that God freely gives us a share in Christ's inheritance, the glory of Christ. It's not something that we work hard to obtain, that we sacrifice for. No. This is something that Jesus worked hard to obtain, that he sacrificed for. And he grants it to us freely as an inheritance received by faith. Um, in verse 14 in chapter 1, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, it says that are not the angels sent out to serve those who for, the sake, uh, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's us. We inherit salvation. In chapter 9, Hebrews says that he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This is our inheritance not because we earn it, but because it's given to us, a share in the glory of Jesus. Glory's the opposite of shame. Jesus has this greater glory, and and that greater glory is the opposite of shame. Shame says that you're trash. Glory says that you're treasured. Shame says that you're condemned. Glory says you're commended. Shame says you're rejected, and glory says you're accepted. And you and I spend every single day of our lives running from shame and looking for glory. Running from rejection and looking for acceptance. Running from feeling like we're trash and trying to find a sense that we're treasure. And Jesus offers that glory to us freely. Let me close with these words from J.I. Packer. He says, when we think of Jesus exalted in glory, in the fullness of the joy for which he endured the cross, a fact, let it be said, of which Christians should think often. We should always remind ourselves that everything he has will someday be shared with us. For it is our inheritance, no less than his. and We are among the many sons whom God is bringing to glory. And God's promise to us And his work in us are not going to fail. Let me pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us a share in your greater glory. As if your glory wasn't great enough as our creator and our keeper. But you added to your glory by becoming our savior and going to a cross. We would see in greater detail the the glory of your forgiveness, the glory of your mercy, the glory of your love, the the glory of your justice, the, the glory of your kingdom to be shared with us. And we thank you for Jesus, for his beautiful feet with scars in them so that we can be brought into your glory. In his name we pray.